You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church of Savannah. If you would like to find out more information about our church, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. Welcome to another gathering of Community Bible Church. My name is Clint. I'm one of the pastors on staff. I like to always say this, that if you're new with us, this is your first time. I don't preach every single week, so if this is horrible, give us another shot. You know, that's... That's really my, uh, my uh, spiel there. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Judges chapter 10. That's where we're gonna spend our time this morning, actually 10, 11, and 12, at least the majority of that. We have a lot to do, um, and I'm already long-winded, so if you're hungry right now, you might wanna go grab a snack. Um, you should've come to the first service if you wanna get out early. Kinda kidding, okay? Um, this morning, we're gonna continue our series through the Old Testament book of Judges. Um, and we took last week off of preaching in this series. We had a joint service with Beulah Baptist Church. Hopefully, you were here with us to celebrate that unity that we were able to see. And we took off of the book of Judges for that series primarily because we didn't wanna give this text to Pastor Lee. That's pretty much what it is. It was, hey, let's give it to Clint, all right? We don't wanna put that on Pastor Lee. Not because he couldn't handle it, and I can. That's not what I'm saying. We just didn't wanna do that to the brother. You know what I'm saying? Um, so if you were here two weeks ago, uh, last time we were in Judges, Bill covered two smaller sections of scripture that kind of sandwiched the section we're going to cover today. So he hit the first part of 10 and the last part of 12, and what he said about that, if you were here with us, was that these are like the credit roll to a movie, right? That kind of the words on the screen at the beginning and the end that no one cares about except for the mamas of those people, right? Because they see their, their baby's names and they're like, oh, there she go, you know? Um, but I, reason, I mentioned that this morning is because if... That is the credit, the part before and after what we're about to read. Then the, what we're about to read then, the story is the movie that you wanna love, but you can't because the ending is horrible, right? You know those movies, you have some. Um, I'm not a movie guy, and so I have to go way back, all right? Then I'm talking about the 1997 classic, The Titanic, all right? Um, and here's why. There is enough tragedy in that story already. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we couldn't, the director couldn't do anything about what was gonna happen. The ship was going down. Over 1,500 people died. It was this horrible scene. Couldn't Jack and Rose have both survived? You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't wanna open, this is a tender spot for a lot of you, I know. Um, I don't wanna open that door, no pun intended, but there was room. You got that. There was room on that piece of wood for both of them, okay? We can just say it. I, there was a picture. I didn't want to put us all through it. I could have put a picture on the screen. There was room for both of them. Wasn't buoyed enough, we don't know, but technically they could have both survived. At least we want them to, you know? It ruins the story. One minute, Rose is, I'll never let you go. The next minute, there he goes, right? Down, <laughs> down to the bottom of the ocean, like our sins we just sing about. If, and if that wasn't enough, um, the whole movie really is about them finding this diamond, right? The heart of the ocean. And then at the end of the movie, we find out, oh my gosh, it was in the pocket all, the time, all along. Rose has it, and then she throws it into the ocean. And you're like, God, it completely ruins the movie. Like, can we redeem something in this? Anyways, that's what we have in Judges 10 to 12. We have a movie that you want to love, but you can't because the ending is horrible, and it starts out good, but the ending completely ruins it. Look at verse 6, chapter 10. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and they did not serve him. So here we are again. Almost, after almost 50 years of peace from Tola and Jair, the, the minor judges that we read about, here we are again. Israel jumps right back into the cycle of sin, and the Bible says they do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And so other places we see this in the book of Judges, they're usually, when they do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, they're, they're worshiping false gods of, of the, their enemies. And it's usually one or two, right? It's the Baals and the Astaroths, but this time it's deeper. Because Israel has dove headfirst into idol worship. In the Bible list, I just read it, seven different gods that they were worshiping. And the significance here is twofold. One, it means that they are running after and offering themselves to every single foreign god of the enemies who have conquered them. Which, how silly is that? And two, the number seven in the Bible has significance because it's the number of completion. This means that Israel is completely abandoned God that they keep running to the same wells that got them into trouble in the first place. And we've talked about this a few times already in this series, but this is what sin does. Sin never stays the same. It will always demand more from you. Every single time, sin will promise you something, overpromise, and it will under-deliver. It will betray you. And the problem that the Israelites have is the same thing that you and I struggle with today, that when we get to the spot in our lives, the moment where our sinning our running after other gods besides God, and there's a whole bunch of categories for that, but when we get to the spot where we are disappointed in our lives because of our sin, our tendency isn't to, in that space, recognize our mistakes and then go to God, is it? When we get to that spot, our tendency, what we think we need to be satisfied is more of the thing that already let us down. This is the cycle of idolatry, it's how it works. We look deeper and deeper into the things that betrays us. And the book of Judges is a wake-up call for us, it should be. The, uh, the screaming out to us that says that you are looking to the wrong well. Jeremiah 2 verse 13 says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And the idea here is that we are trying to drink from filthy, broken cups, all the while our God is a fountain of living water. We're dying of thirst, desperately trying to make a broken cup work, and the part we tend to miss is, hey, maybe we have the wrong cup. Not trying to make this one work, maybe I need a new cup, a different one. Look at verse seven. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan, verse nine, and the Ammonites crossed the Jordan also to fight against Judah, and so that Israel was severely distressed. And so what we see here is the devastation that results from being unwilling to let go of that broken cup. This is what happens in our lives as we continue. We're steadfast in our rebellion against God. Verse seven says, the Lord sold Israel into the hand of their enemies. And just like sin never stays the same, neither do the consequences for our sin. Because the Bible just said that they were sold into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. And so if you're familiar with ancient Middle Eastern geography, which I know you all are, right? You know that the Philistines are on the west and the Ammonites are on the east. And so they were being attacked from both sides. But not only that, it says that the, the Ammonites had crossed over the Jordan River, so they're, they're in this, the central tribes of uh, Israel as well. And what that means is their complete abandoning of God had led them to being completely occupied by the enemy. It's the consequence for sin, it's what happens. Verse nine says, so that Israel was severely distressed. Another way to translate that word distressed, it means to be bound, to be tied up. Have you ever felt that way before? in your life and in your sin, stuck. There's nothing that you can do to move beyond the circumstances that you're in, and this is where Israel was. Look how they respond, verse 10. 
the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and we have served the Baals. That sounds like a good prayer, doesn't it? That sounds like the prayer you would want someone to pray to God if there, at least it sounds like genuine repentance, but let's keep going. Look at verse 11. The Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and the Amorites and from the Ammonites and the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and you've served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. That feels harsh, doesn't it? This is not the way that we would expect our God to respond. It doesn't seem to fit who we think he is. And as hard as it is, I love texts like this because it forces us to realize that God isn't required to be who we think he is, right? He isn't required to act and respond the way that we think he should respond. And you and I need to pay attention when we come up to places like this in our lives, when we read something in the Bible about God and we think, hey, that didn't feel right. Because what that probably means is that we are operating under an assumption about God that isn't consistent with who he's revealed himself to be in the word. We need to pay attention there. And so Israel cries out to God for his help and, and his response to them is pretty much no, right? Verse 13, kind of the end there, he says, I'll save you no more. He says, go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen and let them save you in your time of distress. What do we do with that? Like, that's our God responding to his people that way. What do we do with that? In our minds, that seems inconsistent with who we know him to be. Because we think God is gracious. We just sang it, right? His mercy is more. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And we know that to be true. But what do we do in places like this? And really much most of the Old Testament where we see God acting in ways that feels like anything but love. And if we're honest, it feels like two different categories, doesn't it? That the Old Testament is full of law and wrath, and yet the New Testament is full of love and grace. And so there are certainly differences between the Old and the New Testament, but what I wanna show you today in the book of Judges is that God's character is consistent throughout all of eternity. And that's important. That's important for us to see that God's character is consistent throughout all of eternity because that means we have a God who didn't one day become gracious but we have a God who was, is, and always will be a God of grace, and a God who relates to his people graciously. And the Bible, the whole thing, tells the story of the people of God. So I got four things for you this morning that we can learn about the grace of God from this passage of scripture, and I want you to know that this is the most Bill Fowler-esque sermon I've ever preached in my life, okay? <laughs> I've already given a movie reference, that's a must, and then you have to have four points. You can't do three because that's too Baptist, so we have to have four points, and we have to put them all up on the screen. Bill's not here this weekend, and so I'm honoring his memory in that way. <laughs> four things that we can learn about the grace of God. Here's the first one. Verse 13 and 14, God says, I will save you no more. He says, go cry out to the gods whom you've chosen and let them save you. And right now you're thinking, what does that have to do with grace, right? But then look at what happens next. Verse 15, the people of Israel respond this way. They say to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. The first thing we see and learn about God's grace here is that God's grace is what leads us toward true repentance. 
See the difference here between what they say to God in verse 10 and what they say in verse 15. In verse 10, they essentially say, God, we want you because we need something from you, right? We need you to deliver us. But in 15 now, they're still asking for deliverance, but what do they say first? Only do what to us whatever seems good to you. See how that's different. When we go to God in order to get something from him, what we reveal about us is that what we want isn't God, we want the thing he's gonna give us. That's completely different there. But when you go to God for him, go to him for him, that is truly repentance. At the end of verse 16, it says that God becomes impatient over the misery of Israel. I love that. The idea is that our God couldn't stand to see his people suffer. And it broke his heart to say to them the first time, no, right? Go to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you. I will save you no more. It broke his heart to say that, but he knew he needed to because he needed Israel to learn. He wanted his people to see that they were asking for the wrong thing. And it is God's grace that leads Israel to this posture of heart where their relationship with him is restored. Because at first, that's not what they were asking for. Right? They're not asking for the relationship with him to be restored. What they're asking is that their lives would be easy again. And they don't care how they got there. They don't even care for that matter who would get them out of it. They just wanted their lives to be easy. They just want out. And they've tried everything else they can, and so now they figure, what, what could it hurt? Let's just ask God. And the way God responds, it seems harsh, but in reality, it's his grace towards them because he wants to lead them into genuine, true repentance. God is not interested in being one of the things on our shelf that gets all dusty until we need it to fix something for us. That's not what he is about. He wants to take our hands off of that broken cup so that we could learn to drink something better, to teach us to ask a different question, a better question. Not, God, will you fix this for me? But when we feel so stuck, so bound, so trapped in our sin, he wants to teach us that we can go to him and say, God, even now, can I trust you? And God, in his grace, he says no to the Israelites. First question, the question that says, hey, will you fix this? He says, no, I won't, because he wants to teach them the answer to the second question is yes. Even now, you can trust me. God's grace leads us to true repentance. Even in seasons of life where his answer to us is no. Look at verse 17. The Ammonites were called to arms. That's the enemy of Israel, right? They encamped at Gilead. That's right there on their their next door neighbor, right? And the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah and the people, the leaders of Gilead, they said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So after God becomes impatient over the misery of Israel, the next thing we see is that the Ammonites, the Israel's enemy, they're called to arms. Basically, Israel's enemy is getting ready for battle. And so Israel gathers together too and they see this happening and they, they ask a question. We saw it there. Hey, who's gonna lead us? Who's the man who's gonna lead us in this battle? And the idea is that there isn't one there. They don't have someone who's mighty enough who can handle this. And this is where we find out about our next judge, a guy named Jephthah. Look at chapter 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. This is huge here. But he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And then Jephthah fled from his brothers and he lived in the land of Tob 
and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah, and they went out with him. So here's what we know about our next judge, a guy named Jephthah. We know first that he is a mighty warrior. And that's a good thing, right? Because that's what Israel needs right now. They're asking the question, who's gonna lead us? And he's a guy who has the skills, a particular set of skills to lead them. Another movie reference, Bill would be real proud. If you missed it, we're gonna keep moving. But he wasn't just a mighty warrior, right? He was also, what, the son of a prostitute. So he was Gilead's son, right? The, the leader of, of this tribe of Israel, he's Gilead's son, but he was also illegitimate. And as a result, when his half-brothers grew up, they decide, hey, we don't wanna share, we don't wanna split our inheritance with him also, so let's just run him out of town. And so out of a combination of a fear for his own life and, and, a, and a desire not to see, like living in the same town, seeing his brothers enjoy the things that they robbed from him that were rightfully his, Jephthah leaves and he ends up in a place and the Bible says that a group of men called worthless fellows kind of gather around him, he becomes their leader. So this worthless fellows, just think outlaws. It literally translates empty men, which means they have nothing and they also have nothing to lose. We could spend a lot of time here but what I want you to see about Jephthah is that he was a guy who had more than his fair share of emotional baggage. That's what we have to dial into here. His all his life, he wrestled with the fact that he was the son of a prostitute. And we have those things about us, right? Those spaces of shame, those spaces of, of inadequacy, where when everything goes quiet in our heart, we think, that's what people think about me. For Jephthah's, it was, my daddy doesn't love me enough to keep my brothers from kicking me out of the house. It defined him, right? You cannot tell me that didn't shape the man he became and he becomes angry, so much so that he gets this reputation and actually becomes this mighty warrior. And so the leaders of, of Gilead, right, they're like, hey, who, who are gonna lead us? Who's gonna lead the fight? And they think of Jephthah. They think of their half-brother who they ran off who knows how many years earlier. And so in verse, or chapter 11, verse six, they come to him and they say, hey, will you come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites? And so here's the second thing that I want us to see about God's grace from this text, and maybe the most important. God's grace shows us that there is nothing in our lives too broken for him to overcome. Jephthah was not a guy that came from a good family, right? He didn't have an Ivy League education. He had a terrible credit score and an awful police record, right? He had a deeply dysfunctional past. This man was the unwanted, illegitimate product of adultery. He was unloved by his family, driven away from his home, and he lived a life of organized crime. This man was not the quintessential good kid. Translation, he was not the kid that we have the tendency to think God loves the most. And yet, God uses him to deliver his people. God's grace shows us that no matter how dark, how dysfunctional our lives may be, there is nothing so broken that he cannot overcome. And isn't that good news for us this morning? If we are honest about who we are, if we can for a moment take the mask off long enough for people to see what's really inside of us, all the, the spaces of inadequacy and all the things that would drive us and motivate us, that's good news for us this morning. What we need to see is that Jephthah isn't the exception. This is the story of the book of Judges. Ehud was left-handed. We've seen this. Deborah was a woman. Gideon was afraid. God uses unexpected means to accomplish incredible things. It's not just Judges. In reality, the people that God uses most profoundly in all of the Bible are people that you and I probably wouldn't invite over to our house for dinner because they're too dirty, they're too broken, whatever. 
people that we don't typically spend our time with. And it's not just the folks with the perfect resume that God uses, it's the marginalized and the broken, it's the forgotten, it's the rejected. Men and women with significant issues, lust and greed and anger and on and on we could go. And friends, it is nothing less than the grace of God that he would use people like that to accomplish the work of making all things new in the world. So I think we tend to get this wrong on two different levels. We get this wrong on kind of a macro level and then we get it wrong on a day-to-day kind of a micro level. On a macro level, it goes like this. We hear the good news of the gospel, that we are loved by God in Christ, and we think to ourselves, man, there is no way that that can count for me because I've gone too far, right? I've done too much, or maybe even too much has been done to me, that you have been victimized, and so you think there's no way God could possibly love me. I'm too broken. And I don't pretend for a second to know what you've gone through or to know what you are going through, but what I do know is this, that there is no sin too great for the cross of Christ. And what we see in Judges is the people of God completely abandon him and they offer themselves to the gods of their enemies and yet God graciously raises up for them a deliverer. And the temporary deliverance that we see in the book of Judges for you and me on this side of the cross, we look back at that and that temporary salvation should remind us of the eternal and lasting salvation that we have in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says this, for our sake he made him, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we, you and me, might become the righteousness of God. That means that Jesus, the perfect son of God, the only one who knew no sin and therefore deserved no punishment, took upon himself on the cross the punishment that we deserved so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, the Bible just said that you have been given the righteousness of Christ. That the worth and the value and the right standing before God that Jesus earned within his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his subsequent resurrection, it counts for us. Man, that is good news. And so many of us sideline ourselves believing that our sin is too much for Christ to handle. Let me just help you. There is no asterisk in 2 Corinthians 5, no footnote that says except for unless you struggle with this or fill in the blank. And if that feels too good to be true, it is. That's why it's grace. This is how God relates to his people. It's undeserved. So we get it wrong on a macro level, and then here's how it works on a micro level. You say you understand that you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, but every time you mess up, you feel the need to run and hide from God until you have done enough good things to where you can come back to him. And that proves that just like the first group, we don't understand grace either. Because in the same way that your past mistakes don't disqualify you from being used by God, neither does your goodness make you any more likely to be used by him because it's not our goodness that we lean into, it's his. It's the righteousness of Christ that counts for us. Not the righteousness of Christ plus our whatever. God's grace shows us There's nothing in our past too broken for our God to overcome. And if you spend your life working to be good enough to be used by God, you will never get there, ever. And you will be perpetually exhausted and unsatisfied with Christianity, thinking to yourself constantly, is this all that there is? And chances are eventually you're gonna give up 
but in God there's nothing too broken to overcome. Let's keep going. Verse 11 of chapter 11 says, so Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head, and they made him leader over them, and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. And then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites, and he said, what do you have against me that you would come to fight me and take my land? So Jephthah accepts the offer from the elders of Gilead to come and be their leader, and so he returns home, right? It's this, the beginning of a story of redemption, that the man who was rejected, despised and rejected, we should be thinking about, that's pointing us to someone else who was despised and rejected, right? The man who was rejected is sent away by his own family. He comes back, he's brought back home, but instead of immediately rallying the troops, he tries a bit of negotiation. So he sends some messengers to the king of the Ammonites and he basically says, hey bro, why are you coming at me like this? That's essentially, he wrote that on a scroll, sent it on a horse, and that's what the guy delivered. Um, and then they go back and forth a little bit, kind of like my kids fighting over a toy. The king of the Ammonites say, hey, we're coming at you because you took our land and we want it back, so give it to us. If you read the text later, that's exactly what he says. And so then Jephthah gives this epic reply. He says, we didn't take the land from you. You're the Ammonites. We took it from the Amorites. And so he's, just, he's appealing to them historically. He says, and we didn't even want the land from the Amorites. We were passing through the land on the way to the promised land, but then they attacked us, and so the Lord gave us victory over them, and their land came with it. So he, he appeals historically, um, and then he appeals practically. <clears throat> In verse 24, um, he basically says, our God gave us this land. Why don't you just worry about what your God gives you? So that's a, a little not so subtle dig that, hey, your God isn't a God at all, so you don't have any land, that's why you have to take ours. Verse 26, plus, he says it's been 300 years and no one tried to take it from us up until this point, so why would you try to take it now? So Jephthah, who's apparently this master negotiator, he absolutely destroys the argument, like just cranks it out of the park, right? Um, but he doesn't exactly de-escalate the situation. So as you would expect, the king of the Ammonites doesn't just say, hey, you're right, you guys just keep it, and so there's gonna be a battle. Verse 27, Jephthah says, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. He's saying, hey, I don't wanna fight, but if you wanna fight, God's gonna decide. Basically, he's saying, we're gonna win. Verse 28, but the king of the Ammonites didn't listen to the words of Jephthah that he had sent to him. So again, there's gonna be a battle. Verse 29, then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, that's a good thing. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. He passed on to Mizpah and Gilead. From Mizpah to Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. So he's gathering his army. Again, he's saying, I don't want to fight, but if you want to fight, we're doing this, right? Let's scrap. And so he builds his army. Verse 30, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said this, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of my house, from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. That's the victory there. Verse 33, he struck them from wherever that place is to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities as far as that place, with a great blow so that the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. This is what I meant earlier about this being the story that we want to love, the movie we want to love but we can't because the ending is awful. Right, this is the turning point to see that awful ending, and, and what we just read is kind of where that starts out. It starts so strong. Again, I, I talked to Jephthah, this, this picture of redemption, he comes, he's, he's now leading the people of Israel into battle, and he, they win, God gives them the victory, he conquers 20 cities, verse 33, with a great blow, so they were subdued before the people of Israel. That should be the high point of the story. 
It gets like two verses. That should be what the story's about. Praise God, Israel has won. How good is God to give us this deliverance? But the author is drawing our attention to something else. In verse 30, he says, Jephthah makes a vow to God. He says, God, if you give us this victory, then when I come home, whatever comes out of my house to meet me, I will sacrifice up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah is trying to give the Lord his best. He's saying, we read this quickly, like it's a couple of verses, so we think it all happens at once, but battle, war isn't quick, okay? Especially when you're, you're fighting on foot, right? It takes a little bit of time, so we don't know how long he was gone, weeks, months probably. He's saying to God, when I get back, when you give us this victory, when I come back, whatever runs out of my house to meet me, whatever loves me the most, I'm gonna burn it, I'm gonna sacrifice it as an offering to you. So look what happens next, verse 34. And then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. And she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes, and he said, alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. What a devastating and a tragic ending to an otherwise incredible story. And before we move too far into this, I need to say that this is one of the more controversial passages in all the scripture, right? That scholars are split down the middle on what this actually means. There's two ways for us to kind of take it. You can take a literal approach that meant that Jephthah's intent and what he did was he actually intended human sacrifice, that he actually did burn his daughter as a sacrifice to God, but there's also a way that you can read this that is much softer, softer, right? That some scholars think that instead of literally sacrificing his daughter, Jephthah, when he saw it was her instead of an animal or somebody else coming out of his house, that he figuratively sacrificed her, that he offered her to the temple, basically meaning that she would never be married, she would never be able to have children and so he wouldn't have an heir. And that's, that's really what verse 30, the people who believe that say that's what 35 means when he says, daughter, you brought me very low. This is what he's mourning. He's saying that the heir, the inheritance that I've always dreamed of, that was robbed from me when I was a little boy, when I was kicked out, the thing that I wish I always had to be back in my father's house, now I have it, but he's mourning now because he doesn't have anyone to give it to. And I spent a lot of time the past few weeks reading all the different arguments and as tragic as it is, I think the best reading of the text is a literal reading. That Jephthah is so steeped, like has saturated himself in the culture of his day so much of idol worship and sacrifice to pagan gods that he was so desensitized to violence that he felt like he was bound to keep his vow to God. And here's the thing, man, you can disagree with me. Either way you read this, literally or figuratively, it's a terrible story. It's devastating, and the picture the author of Judges wants us to grab onto is that while Gilead and Israel is celebrating, rejoicing, festivals happening because God has delivered us from the oppression of the enemy while all that's going on, Jephthah is mourning the death, the death of his daughter and the reality that he doesn't have an heir to pass his inheritance on to. And Jephthah is mourning the death of his daughter that he finally had that, that inheritance, right? Verse 29 says, the spirit of the Lord was upon him, which means that Jephthah didn't have to make this vow. He had the spirit of the Lord. And, and again, what makes it worse is verse 23 and 24 is he's laying out his 
argument to the king of the Ammonites, he basically says, God is the one who's gonna do this for us. He's making this declaration of faith and trust in God that he is the one who will deliver us out from underneath the hand of the Ammonites. So if that's what Jephthah believed about God, why did he make this vow in the first place, right? Clearly, he didn't expect it to cost him the life of his daughter, but if you trust God the way you say you do, why would you try to barter with him in order to get what you want? And I think Jephthah is like many of us, that we say we trust God, we say we believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, but what do our lives say? Especially when our backs are against the wall. I mean, because it's easy to trust God when everything's going the way you want to, right? It's easy to trust God on Sunday morning when you come in here and your life's going the way you want to. You show up at community group, hey, how are things? That's awesome. We just got the promotion or whatever. What happens when you lose the job? It's easy to trust God when everything's going well. What happens when someone gets sick? When life gets hard, that's when we really find out what we believe about God. And this is where Jephthah was. His whole life, every time he walked into a room, he had in the back of his mind, I wonder what people think about me. I wonder if they're thinking, hey, here comes that prostitute's kid. Here comes that guy whose family didn't love him. And now he has the opportunity to make all that go away. Because Jephthah, at least in his mind, was about to become the hero of Israel. Right? He was about to lead them into battle and deliver them from oppression. The Bible says they endured for 18 years. And remember, Jephthah is this master negotiator. He was a, a mighty warrior, but he was really good with his words, maybe even better. And so when his back is against the wall, instead of leaning into the promises of God, he leans, leans into his own abilities. And he tries to bargain with God. And so the third thing that I want you to see that we learn about the grace of God here is that God's grace does not mean that there isn't consequence for sin. And we tend to think that those two things are mutually exclusive, that if God is gracious, then we shouldn't have to deal with difficulty in our sin, but that is not the case. Jephthah says, God, if you do your part, then I will do mine. And at the root of his sin is a misunderstanding of the character of God, that he had allowed his culture to inform his belief about who his God was. That Jephthah believed that if he was gonna find favor with God, that he would need to earn it. So he says, God, I'll give you my best. And tragically, it ended up costing him more than he could have ever imagined. And oftentimes, the same thing is true for us. That everything in our world operates on this if-then kind of relationship, right? If you pay your mortgage, then you get to live in your house. If you show up at work, then you get a paycheck. But what if you did pay your bills and someone tried to evict you? Wait a minute, I did my part. You need to do yours. What if you showed up for work and you didn't get a check? There would be a problem there. So we live in this if-then world, but we do not have an if-then God. Our God isn't interested in entering into a contract with his people. His relationship with us is not contractual, it's covenantal. It's built on his grace. And friends, that is the best news in all the world because if our relationship with God was contractual, if it was if then, if it was you do your part and I'll do mine, we would never be able to hold up our end of the deal. God isn't interested in bargaining with his people. The only deal that he is willing to make with us is I will give every bit of myself to you in exchange for complete surrender to me. That's it. It's covenant. It's I'm in no matter what. So death do us part. It's wedding vow language, covenant. I'm yours. No one else's. 
And what becomes clear about Jephthah is that regardless of what he says he believes about God, all the lofty words of faith and trust that he says his life points to the reality that he doesn't trust God. Because why else would he go through with this? Look at verse 39. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. The only reason he would ever do this is if he was trapped by his mistrust of God. His belief that he had to hold up his end of the deal, that it was up to him to contribute enough to earn the love and the approval of God. And again, at the root of this is a misunderstanding of the character of God. And what we learn here is that God's grace does not mean that there are not consequences for our sin. And oftentimes what we're gonna see, especially in Judges 11, is that it's not just our lives, but it's the people who are closest to us who it affects, and the results are devastating. This is why we must be people of the word of God, people who read it and meditate on it and pray and think deeply on the pages of scripture, not to check a box or to earn the approval of God, but to remind ourselves that we don't need to be steeped in the culture of the world we live in. We would steep ourselves in the words of God from him to us. It says, this is who I am and this is how I deal with you. This is why we are community Bible church that our belief in God would be shaped by the word and not shaped by the world. We live in an if-then world, but we do not have an if-then God. And by God's grace, the punishment for our sin has been completely absorbed by Christ on the cross, but that does not mean that our sin can't still bring all sort of collateral damage in our lives. And for Jephthah, it doesn't just stop with his daughter. Look at chapter 12, verse one. And the men of Ephraim were called to arms and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and you did not call us to go with you? He says, we will burn your house over you with fire. So we've seen this before, haven't we? If you've been in this series with us, the, the Ephraimites do the same thing to Gideon. They're the people who, you call them and you need help and they never answer, but then they'll be like, oh, just let me know if you need anything. This is who they are. This is the Ephraimites. We've seen this before. And they come at Gideon and he kind of backpedals because he thinks he needs them. But they come stronger at Jephthah. They threaten to kill him. And what they don't know is they're catching this brother on a really bad day. Look at verse two. Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. When I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand. I risked my own life, he says. I crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me to this day to fight against me? And so, what it seems like is the, the Jephthah, this master negotiator, this guy who's good with his words, he's just doing the same thing, right? That's what it seems like, that he's trying to reason with them. But instead of pleading with them not to fight against them, he doesn't wait for their response. He just starts gathering the troops. Look at verse four. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead, doesn't wait to see how they reply to that, and he fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim. Skip down to verse six. He says this, they seized them and they slaughtered them at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. This is the last thing that we need to learn about the grace of God here, that God's grace is given to us so that we would extend it to the people around us. Not just hoard it for ourselves, right? What we have to understand here is that, that this wasn't the enemy. 
The Ephraimites aren't the enemy. That's another tribe of Israel. And don't get me wrong, they're arrogant here. They need to be taught a lesson, but they don't need to be killed. So when the Ammonites, the enemy wants to fight with Jephthah, he doesn't grab his sword. He tries to negotiate. He tries to reason with him. But when his own family comes at him the wrong way, he goes straight for the throat. And isn't this how we act too? That the people closest to us get the worst versions of us. And everyone else gets the the prettied up version. Look how great their family is. And at home, it's nothing like that. The people close to us get the worst versions of us and the reality is what's happening there is that we're pretending. The people at home are getting the real version of what's in our hearts and everyone else gets the pretty up version but the message of the Bible is that God's grace is given to us so that we might extend it to the people around us especially those who are closest to us including our church family, which means for us, maybe we need to reconsider who it is that we're inviting over to our homes for dinner. Is it, hey, let's invite so-and-so over because if we do that, then maybe they'll, right? We need to consider who we're actually spending our time with, who it is that actually matters in this world. Because as we've already covered, God says about you There is nothing too broken about you that I cannot overcome. He says there is nothing about your past or your present circumstances that defines who you are. Instead, you are who I say you are. You are my son, you are my daughter. That's what God says about us. Here's the question we have to answer. This is a big application point for this sermon. Do we believe that about our neighbors? That the same thing is true for them. Do we believe that about the broken and the marginalized, about the weak and the helpless? And if not, what does that say about us? In Luke 7, Jesus is having dinner with some Pharisees, right? Religious leaders, the prettied up people, the people who on the outside have it all together, awesome family. They invite him over for dinner, and so he goes. And then while he's there, the Bible says that a woman of the city runs into Jesus, all right? That does not mean business executive, all right? So this woman of the city busts into the house. You don't know how she heard about it. Maybe she saw him coming in. She busts in and the scripture says that she falls at his feet. She's weeping. She's wetting his feet with her tears and she's wiping it with her hair. And this moment of brokenness, she's rejected. She feels like she has no value. She feels like every time someone looks at her, she thinks this is what they see of me. I am nothing. And in the last ditch effort, she runs to Jesus and pours it all out. And the prettied up people who have it all together try to push her out. And Jesus stops them. He says, therefore, I tell you, he's directing to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And the point is, our disposition, our disposition, those who have received the grace of God, our disposition toward the broken and the marginalized reveals how well we understand our own need for God. That who has been forgiven of little loves little. So if we think, yeah, I need Jesus, but not as bad as them, that's who you are at this dinner party. You're pushing out the broken and the marginalized. Jesus says, no, no. Don't you send her away. These are the people I'm calling to myself that I use to make all things new in the world. That his grace is given to us that we might extend it to the people around us. Look at verse seven of chapter 12. Let's wrap this thing up. 
And Jephthah judged Israel six years. And then Jephthah the Gileadite died and he was buried in his city in Gilead. So there's undertones of redemption there, right? That Jephthah, the man who was kicked out, he comes back home. Gilead is his home and he dies there. There's redemption in that story, but there's something missing here. The first several times the book of Judges talks about God redeeming and reconciling his people out from underneath oppression or the hand of the enemy. It always says so-and-so lived and judged for this many years and then they died and it says, and the land had rest for 40 years. The land had rest for 20 years, 18 years, whatever. You can read the book of Judges. The point there is that Israel, the land has peace. There's an exhale of rest as we talked about when we come to Jesus and we get shalom. But that's not here in Judges chapter 12. There's something missing. And the author, that's intentional, not an oversight. He's trying to draw our attention to something that although Israel has been delivered from the Ammonites, they still don't have peace because not only is Jephthah's family devastated, so is the family of God. The people of Israel have lost 42,000 Ephraimites were slaughtered. Consequence for sin. This is the movie that we wanna love because there's so much good about it, but the ending is horrible and it ruins it. And that's the point of this story. It's to leave us wanting something more. To make us think, man, that's not the hero I want. I want someone better. I don't want someone who will let his daughter take the fall for his own mistakes. And church, that is who we have in Jesus. Not a man who will make us take the fall for him, but someone who is willing to lay his life down for his enemies. and Take the fall for us. We want a better hero and we have one in Jesus. And again, it's because of his grace toward us. Not because of our good deeds, not because of the things that we have done that make us valuable to him because there aren't any. And like the way we need to respond is like this woman in Luke 7, that we would go to him in a last ditch effort and lay it all at his feet. And we can take, find hope in the reality that he's not gonna send us away. Let me pray for us and let's respond to the goodness and the grace of God. Father, I needed to hear that this morning. My prayer is that as we sing and respond that we would be drawn in by the power of the Holy Spirit to see the real Jesus and his glorious grace. Father, for those of us in this room, and I've been there, who are unmoved by the message of the gospel, would you break our hearts? Help us to not be so rigid that we can't enter in and respond with joy and singing and thanksgiving because of who you are and what you've done. We need your help. Would you help us, we pray in Jesus' name.